17th chapter, I sent, I believe, a slide, Luke 17, 32. Did I send you that? Did I send you Luke 17? There it is. This is kind of an obscure scripture, but it's, it's one that I want to take this morning. Luke 17, 32. It's one of the shortest scriptures in the Bible. It goes, Jesus wept, and then this one, remember Lot's wife. I mean, there are other three-word scriptures, but uh, remember Lot's wife. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I God, I pray that you would bless our time together this morning, and as we look into the scripture, may we uh, be changed today. May we see... Uh, God, may the scripture work as a mirror. May, may, we, may we see our reflection for who we really are, but then may we also see Jesus for who he really is and who we need to be and what we need to become. God, I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 This picture that, uh, that goes with this scripture, that is um, Lot's wife's pillar near the Dead Sea. There are two such uh, structures that have been given this nickname. This is one of them. Um, it is believed that the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah were located near the Dead Sea. If you don't know the story of Lot's wife, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I just wanted, I thought this, this photograph is very interesting. Um, because it's taken where the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah were believed to be. Sodom and Gomorrah, as described, I believe it's in Genesis chapter 19, were destroyed by fire. And history tells us that around 1900 B.C., Sodom and Gomorrah ceased to exist. They became uninhabited. History cannot explain this. They do believe that there, there's evidence there of a very hot fire. But history tells us that these towns existed, and they ceased to exist around 1900 B.C. Uh, just a little backstory on the plains of Sodom, where Lot's wife lived. Lot's wife lived with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom, there were, there were two cities in the plain. And, and Lot was Abraham's nephew. We all remember Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham is actually the father of the three major religions in the world. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. They all point back to Abraham. And so Abraham, God called him out from Ur of the Chaldees, if you'll remember. And he, he looked for a city which had foundation, whose builder and maker was God. We know that. And then so Abraham goes out, and he took some of his family with him. And Lot was one of his family. Well, Lot had a lot of possessions himself, had a lot of workers himself. And Lot's workers and Abraham's workers started fighting. And Abraham and Lot got together and said, you know what? We need to separate our families, separate our workers. And Abraham gave Lot the choice. You choose where you want to live. And Lot chose the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, now we're 20 years on from that discussion. And uh, famously, three visitors visit Abraham. They come to tell him, you're going to have a child. And you, you remember, Sarah laughs. And why are you laughing? And... And so then, during this conversation with Abraham, it's so interesting, this conversation with Abraham. Go back and read it. It says there's three visitors, and then the three visitors begin to talk amongst themselves, and they, they say, shall we tell Abraham what we're, what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? 
And then one of the visitors talks to Abraham, and we, we find out that this visitor is God. And he tells Abraham what he's going to do. Abraham begins to plead for Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, God, for 50 people, will you save this, these cities? And God says, yes, for 50 people. If I can find 50 righteous people, I will save the cities. And then Abraham hedges his bed a little bit and says, okay, how about for 45? And then God says, okay, for 45. And then he says, what about 40? And then 35, 30. I mean, Abraham sounds like an auctioneer here. He eventually gets down to 10. And God says, if I can find 10 righteous people, I will spare the cities. But 10 righteous people cannot be found in all of the cities. And this is fascinating to me. Now, I don't know what you've heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. There's, there's, there's a lot in this story, and there's a lot in the stories. But, but it has kind of taken on a caricature in Christian lore of being Las Vegas on steroids. Right? What happens in Sodom and Gomorrah? stays in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know. But the sins of Sodom are described to us in detail in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. And this is what the Bible says about Sodom. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty. It's not a word you hear very often, is it? Haughty. And did detestable things before me, therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. This is the only place in Scripture where the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are specifically named by God. God could not find ten people who did not fit this mold of righteousness. He couldn't find 10 people who weren't arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, and who helped the poor and needy. He couldn't find 10 people. I'm looking around this church. I think there's more than 10 people in here who would fit that. Now, I'm, I probably would have got left because I'm overfed if you look at me right now. I'm in a bit of a, I don't know what the deal is, a bit of a funk. <laughs> I blame it on my kids, two of my kids worked for an ice cream place for a couple years, and it's just, it became too easy to just to shoot off a text, bring dad a peanut butter sundae on your way home. <laughs> it was just too easy. Or are there any mistakes in the freezer? It's interesting how I blame others for my <laughs> problem. But in Ezekiel 49, we're told what the sin of Sodom was. She was arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy, and they were haughty and did detestable things before the Lord. There were not ten people who fit that mold. God could not find ten people in the city. Ten righteous. And and the way I come to that, I think, I think we revert, we can, according to this scripture that God gives us in Ezekiel, we can reverse engineer what he meant by 10 righteous. Right? Because Abraham says, if you find 50 righteous. Well, in, in, the, in the Genesis 19 account, 
God and Abraham don't talk about what righteous is. But when Ezekiel says that this was the sin of Sodom, then I think we can reverse engineer someone who was not like this would be considered righteous. Now, you can disagree with that, and we could talk about that after church, not right now. (laughs) But I think, biblically speaking, that that is a description of an unrighteous person. Somebody's overfed. Now, righteousness takes on many other forms, too. That is not just the only description. But it seems to be one that God was concerned about. And it's amazing to me that he couldn't find 10 people in these cities. And it, I, I think it's ironic, I'll, th- I'll throw this in here, uh, that living opposite of this, living where you're humble, where you sacrifice food for others, where you are concerned for others, and where you help the poor and needy, and when you don't do detestable things in the sight of the Lord, you're being salt and light. And it's ironic when you think about Lot's wife's end. Okay, so my first point, and I've only got two points that I want to drive home to you today, is be righteous in this way. Be righteous. When God looks down at St. Joseph, Missouri, let him find a church of people who live not like Sodom in this way. Let him find a church of people who are not overfed, but who are concerned, who are not arrogant, but are humble, who help the poor and needy in their plight, who are not haughty and who do not do detestable things before the Lord. When he looks at the river church, let him find people not like that. Let him find 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people who do what is right in the sight of the Lord, who are righteous in that way. Let us be righteous in that way. God was looking for righteous men and women, and he could not find them. Let him find in us righteous men and women. Let him find in us righteousness. So, so God and Abraham have this conversation, and then two of the, of the three visitors go, to, go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. They find Lot, they enter the city. They said, we're going to spend the night in the center square, in the city square. And Lot's like, no, 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 stay in my house. I'm going to bake you some bread. He bakes them some unleavened bread. They are eating there. The men of the city gather around the house and demand that the two men be given to them. And then Lot does a very strange thing. He says, no, 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 take my daughters instead. I think we're learning a little bit about Lot here. I, I just can't understand. I am not a violent person. If you slap me, I hope that I will turn the other cheek. And I pray that I will, and I want to do that. But if you come to my house for my daughters, I'm not a very strong man, but you better be stronger than me. And you better be willing to kill me to get to them. Now, I am not a violent person, and I do not incite violence, and I just don't try it. <laughs> so we don't have to go. <laughs> so I'll have nothing to repent for, and you won't be, I won't be doing your service. But I just don't understand this out of lot. There's a selfishness here to save his own neck 
with the men of the city. Because the men of the city are upset with him because, because they say to him, you think you're going to come here and be our judge? You're a stranger. You're a foreigner here. And so to appease them, to keep things right with them, to keep his reputation, he's willing to give his own daughters. I don't understand it. But I think it lets us into a little bit of how selfish Lot had become. The kind of evilness and wickedness that God saw when he looked at Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, Lot is not spared because of his own prayers. Lot is spared for Abraham's sake. Scripture explicitly tells us that later. So to that, I'm just going to take a little sidebar. This isn't even in the notes. Moms, dads, aunts, uncles, pray for those kids. Pray for those nieces and nephews. Pray for those who are lost. Pray for those who look hopeless. Because for your faithfulness, God might show mercy. We believe in a God who answers prayers, right? So hold on. No matter how bad it looks. Hold on. Keep praying. Okay, so the, the Lot's like, well, here, have my daughters. And the men, the, the two angels, they open the door, they grab Lot, pull him inside, they strike the men of the city with blindness. They say to Lot, do you have anybody else here that you care about in this city? Because you need to warn them and get them out. He's got, oh, i got a couple son-in-laws. They're going to be real happy with me when they find out what I just did. No, he doesn't say that, but... So he runs and tells his son-in-laws, listen, God's about to destroy the city. We've got to get out of here. The son-in-laws think he's joking. What kind of a reputation does Lot have where he can't convince the, his, his, the two men betrothed to his daughters that he's serious? I mean, I have so many questions about Lot as I read this story, as I reread it this past week. You know, in my mind, I just kind of thought, you know, I had heard it as a kid. I'd read it before. But as I reread it, there's just so many questions come up. Then later we see that Lot is, has to be led out of the city and his wife is way behind. He's not even with her. He's, he's for himself. He's, he's, he's the perfect description of, of this. Okay, so the angels come. The mob demand them. Lot offers his daughters. Then they tell Lot, go, anybody else. I already mentioned a bit in my notes I have. Lot sees people as commodities. Lot sees people as a way to get ahead, to get what he wants. And that's not how we're to view people. He tells his son-in-laws they refuse to go. Then the angel says to Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, okay, now we've got to go. And it's, the scripture tells us they hesitate. I wish it gave us more details. Because what did they do? Did they sit down? Did Lot sit down and say, you know what? I'm tired. Forget it. Why did they hesitate? How did they hesitate? It says the angels had to grab them by the hands and drag them out. The angel grabbed their hands, grabbed Lot's wife's hands, grabbed their children's hands. And said, flee. And, and, Lot, and Lot hesitates, it says. It doesn't say his family hesitated. It says Lot hesitates. But I have to believe they hesitated too. And for the very first time, we see the word mercy in all of Scripture. In Genesis 19, Lot hesitates. God shows mercy. 
Lot hesitates. Lot doesn't want to do what God has asked him to do. But again, it's for the faithfulness of Abraham, for the prayers of Abraham. And again, I encourage you to keep praying for your children. Keep praying for those who seem to be lost, who seem to be without hope. We all know somebody who's without hope, who seems to be. We all know somebody who we think of as being too far gone, too far lost. They've hesitated too much. They refuse to leave that swallow. They refuse to leave where they are. They refuse to come out and do what they know they're supposed to do. You keep praying. You keep holding on. God is not a respecter of persons. We know this. Peter tells us this in Acts. I know now that God is not a respecter of persons. And if God honored Abraham's prayers, he will honor yours. So keep praying. How many prayers has God wanted to answer, but we just haven't prayed? Okay, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting off my notes. I need to get back to the story. So they hesitate. God shows mercy. The angels grab them by the hands. They say, get out of here, go to the mountains. And Lot, you see him say, I can't go to the mountains, I'll die. Lot, again, selfish. He doesn't talk about his wife. He doesn't talk about his kids. He's talking about himself. He's like, let me go to this little town. And the angels like, finally relents. He's like, okay, you can go to this town of Zoar. And they, they travel all night. And the angels, the angels' last words to them are, God's going to destroy the city with fire. Do not look back. And so they travel all night. And as the sun is rising, lava starts coming out of the sky. And Lot's wife turns around and looks back. And Scripture tells us that she's turned to a pillar of salt. In Genesis chapter 19. Now, this fascinates me on many levels, not just on Christian levels, scripture levels, Jewish tradition levels, scientific levels. So I started doing some research this week. I, I listened to a scientific podcast that is not a Christian podcast, and I almost quit listening to it because of it was a little irreverent. But they got to a paper that was written in 1988 by a, a um, chemist, the University of Minnesota, I believe. And this chemist took on the task of determining what happened to Lot's wife from a scientific standpoint. And he said that what he believed could have happened if he, he was not saying he believed this account. But he said that if enough heat was generated... And a fireball of heat, you know, the sun sets out like fireballs and sometimes fires like real hot fires, like bursts of fireballs will come. If she was lagging far enough behind, I just think this is interesting. This is not in, your, in the Bible. This is just free. That a person with, enough, with, a, with heat hot enough and a, a fireball filled with enough carbon could crystallize the calcium in a person's body and they would turn into a salt-like substance. <laughs> Fascinating to me that somebody took, took this on. I'm not saying, now, 
Now, here's what I believe about God. People tell me all the time, Jonah, could, a whale can't swallow anything bigger than a grapefruit. I believe if, if God wants a whale to swallow a person, then God can make it happen. I believe if God wants somebody to turn into a pillar of salt, then God can make it happen. He doesn't need to be backed up by science or by anybody else. But I just think it's fascinating to, to think about these things and, and to think about physically how it might happen. So anyway, that guy's name, his last name is Plot, P-L-O-T, um, in 1988, University of Minnesota. If you don't believe me, you can go look it up. Uh, anyway, Lot's wife turns around. Scripture says she becomes a pillar of salt. And then I wish I could tell you that the rest of Lot's story with his daughters was peachy and that, that, that Lot left all of their sin in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it, it's, it didn't happen. If you want to read the rest of the story, you can. I want to focus for just a couple more minutes on Lot's wife looking back. In Scripture, I've always been a little bit troubled by this because it does feel like the crime does not finish. The crime does not fit the punishment. In the legal system, they say that the crime, the punishment must fit the crime. It feels like this punishment is a bit harsh for looking back. If you read um, the Jewish historian Josephus, He's a first century Jewish, Jewish historian. He lived about the time of Christ. He chronicles, actually, the life of Christ. He also mentions Lot's wife. And he talks about the, the Jewish oral tradition that says, that goes along with the historic scriptural tradition, that says Lot's wife kept looking back. She kept longing after Sodom. So my first point this, to you this morning was to be a righteous person. Be a person who does not have those traits, but in fact the exact opposite of those traits. My second point to you this morning is stop looking back or don't spend your life looking back. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, uh, the apostle tells us, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So I believe there are two ways that she could have been looking back, and there are two ways that we can look back and get ourselves into trouble. She was either looking back toward her possessions, toward her things. I mean, they had to get up and leave in the middle of the night. I was on a, when I flew to Haiti when I was a kid, I was going there on a missions trip and I'd never flown over the ocean before. And um, the flight attendant was talking about if we crash in the water, which was just what I needed to hear. And, uh, but if we crash, if we do a crash landing, leave your things. Don't take time to grab your things. Don't grab your suitcase. Don't grab your, you know, even if your wallet and your passport's in there, leave it. we got to get out of this vessel. Don't take time to, to, to do that. And so, I mean, think about Lot's wife. She's leaving her home. She's leaving, you know, her friends. So there was a pull there. There was, there was a draw there toward her possessions. But the Bible tells us that not to love the things of this world. And I don't think it's just talking about possessions. I think it's talking about power and influence. Because we all want that, right? 
Now, we do want possessions, right? We've all seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. I've seen that bumper sticker. It's not true, by the way. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul truck or U-Haul trailer. You can't take them with you. But we don't just want possessions. We want power. And we want influence. And, and when John the Apostle tells us there in 1 John, do not love the things of this world, he's not just talking about possessions. I believe he's talking about the systems of this world. Now, some of us spend a lot of time, and I used to spend a lot of time, getting so involved in political, in, in politics and in political systems and worrying about the political systems of this world. But I believe that the apostle is warning us here, do not love the things of this world. We are strangers here in a foreign land. We have a home, but it is not here. It is there. We have a king, but he is not here. And you don't get to vote for him. We have a king, and his name is Jesus. And that will not change. Presidents will come, presidents will go. But Jesus will remain king. So spend your time and your effort working on his kingdom, the one that's going to last. Right? You can spend your, all your time and energy for, for another kingdom, and you only get eight years at the most. Unless their VP gets in. Then you'll get another four, and then maybe another eight. But I'm talking about a kingdom that's going to last forever. Spend your time. On that, don't don't be like Lot's wife and looking back at at the possessions and at the power and at the influence and at the the, the politics of Sodom. I don't know what the politics of Sodom were. We know they they did have a judge because they accused Lot of trying to be his judge. And I'm reading a lot into to Lot's wife this morning. A lot of what she was looking back. We, we're not even told her name. We don't even get her name. We just know that she's Lot's wife. She shows up. Here, or she shows up in Genesis 19 briefly, and Jesus mentions her. Remember Lot's wife. So a couple ways we look back is, is we look at possessions, we look at the, the politics of this world, and we look at this kingdom, the earthly kingdom. And we're not to do that. In fact, Jesus... If you go back to, to Luke 17, 32 is what I read, remember Lot's wife. But then if you read 33, he says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. So when Jesus is talking about remembering Lot's wife, he follows it with that. If you seek to save your life, to save your own neck, to be overfed, arrogant, not help the needy. You seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life, how do you lose your life? You give it away. Jesus himself said, nobody's taken my life from me. I'm giving it away. Now, there have been Christians in the past whose lives were taken from them. But you can choose to give your life away. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. All right, if we, if we look back and, and we focus on possessions or uh, power or influence, then we become like Sodom. We become arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and unwilling to help the needy and the poor. So let's not focus on possessions. It's so easy, especially in today's world, 
especially in, you know, especially in here in these United States of America where we have it better than every other country in the world. We have, we were walking through the grocery store the other day and uh, Miles said, look at all this stuff that's going to get thrown out. I mean, the, the fruit is just over, there's no way everybody's going to buy all that. A lot of it's going to get thrown out. We throw away more food than other countries even get in. We spend more money on Xbox and PlayStation 4 games. If, if we took the money we spent on Xbox and PlayStation 4, that money could solve world hunger. We're overfed. We're arrogant. We're unconcerned. And we're unwilling to help the needy and the poor. God, help us. God, wake us up. God, open up our eyes. And, 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 and if you are going to become involved in the politics of this world, do it on behalf of the poor and needy. Do it on behalf of how can we feed the world. Not how can we build our platform or my rights and my privileges. How are we going to feed them? Jesus saw the hungry people with compassion. He looked at his disciples and he said, feed them. And they said, we can't. We don't even have enough for ourselves. We've got two loaves and three fish. And he said, give it to me. And I'll never forget, and it's probably been five years ago, I was mowing the grass out here. That's not the last time I mowed the grass, but... <laughs> And I'm just mowing along, thinking about what I was going to do as soon as I was done. I'm not a big fan of mowing the grass. You can ask my wife. She, she'll speak to that. And I just felt like, the, and I'm, I'm not super big on people who say they heard from the Lord. So I'm going to say it this way. I felt like the Lord spoke the scripture. Just this real short scripture. Give them something to eat. Where he, where, and it's found, I looked it up, I mean, I knew, I think, I thought I knew where it came from, is when he was about, they were about to feed the 5,000, and he said, have them sit down and give them something to eat. And as I'm mowing the grass, I'm like, Lord, we don't have enough for ourselves. We don't. And you want us to feed them? You want us to feed others? We don't even have, you know, and I was thinking about the, the, particular financial situation the church was in and, and all these other things are going through my mind and I'm like, Lord, how are we going to do any of it? And I, I remember I, I came and I preached and I spoke that, uh, I spoke it one week and <laughs> I think that was, it hasn't been, I don't think it's been five years because I think Isaac was here that day and uh, I got up and we took up a collection and we went and bailed somebody out of jail. <laughs> you remember that? It was, the, that was the Sunday after and we didn't have any money in the offering plate that day. No, we hadn't, we hadn't done a lot of stuff. But, but after that Sunday, I, I got up and I preached that. And it, it was, I don't want to go into the whole detail, but it was like we didn't have enough to pay our bills that week. But the people who were there gave. And we went and visited somebody when they were in prison. And we got, we got, we got him out of jail. And, I mean, it's a, it's a really long story. I don't want to take time to tell it. You can ask me about it. I'll tell you about it sometime.
But from then on, and, and not that we hadn't done this before, I'm not trying to say that, but it felt like that became a focus of our church was to feed others and to take care of others and to put others first and to not be so concerned about ourselves. And again, not that we were super inwardly focused or anything like that, but it felt like God was speaking to our church at that time. And that's what he's calling us to, to be. If God looked at St. Joe, Missouri, would he find 10 churches, 10 people who weren't like that? Okay, so one way that I believe Lot's wife was looking back, I believe she was longing after her possessions, longing after her political, not her political status, her social status. She was longing after things that she wasn't going to have anymore. And another way that we can look back is we live in, our, we live in the past. So many of us live in regrets. So many of us live in regrets of what we have done. Right? The sins that we've committed. The ways that we've let others down. The way that we've let God down. The way, the evil that we've done. We live in the past. We live in the regret of that. We beat ourselves up for what we've done. Or others in our lives will remind us of what we've done and how we've messed up. There are, we all know people like that who will remind you of what you've done or your past. I heard not too terribly long ago, I believe it was within a year or so ago, uh, and I've actually shared it before, but I'm going to share it again, that the Apostle Peter, when he would go preach sometimes, there'd be hecklers in the audience. I believe that it was uh, one of the church, early church, it's not in the Bible, but I believe one of the early church fathers references it in a sermon. That, and the hecklers would make the noise a rooster makes. <laughs> to remind Peter of his past, of his failure. Don't so two things, don't listen to the roosters, don't listen to them, because they're there. You look hard enough, you're going to find them. They will confront you with what you've done and how bad you were, and who do you think you are? And number two, don't be a rooster. Right? That's, that's easy to do sometimes. Oh, he's up there preaching? <laughs> I know what he's done. Or she's going to try to get all righteous and tell me. I'll just remind her. Don't be a rooster and don't listen to the roosters. Some of us have been abused in our past. And that's very real. And I don't want to just try to tell you to sweep that under the rug and pretend it never happened. Some of you have been abused mentally, physically, sexually. And I'm not telling you to just Pretend that never happened. Or to sweep it under the rug. I'm imploring you to confront it, name it, and do not let it define you. Do not let it define who you are. And with the help of the Lord, begin to live your life 
not looking back. And look forward. Because all too often what happens is something will happen to us, an event, a tragic event. Sometimes it's over a long period of time. And then that begins to define who we are. It changes our personality and it, it becomes more of who we are than the fact that we are a child or a daughter of God. And if we focus on that and if all we do is think about again, I'm not telling you to sweep it under the rug and pretend it never happened. I'm imploring you to turn it over to Jesus. To find someone that you trust and talk about it with them. Because I believe we bear one another's burdens, right? Bear ye one another's burdens, thus fulfill the law of Christ. Don't carry it alone. Talk to somebody about it. Because God wants to heal you. God wants to heal you. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 53? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We give it to him. Because he's already carried it. And he will help you carry it. But, but honestly, truthfully, find someone who is a believer that you trust and talk through it. If you can't seem to move past it, talk through it. And if somebody, church, if somebody comes to you and confides in you, don't be a rooster. Back to them or don't be cock a doodle doing it. They're past to everybody else either. Because gossip is listed with murder. And that's why we won't confide in one another. It's because we don't trust one another. Man, this is, none of this is in my notes. The only thing that's in my notes is don't look into your past. Okay. It feels kind of heavy in here, but, but I... But we need to live our lives in the victory that we have in Christ. Right? And we need to move past our own faults and our own sins that people keep throwing up in our face and the sin done to us. Because before you ever sinned, sin was done to you. <clears throat> okay. I think we can, we can move on. My two points. Number one, be a righteous person. Be a righteous person. Don't be overfed, unconcerned. Number two, don't spend your tomorrows wallering in yesterday. We, we all know people who spend their whole life, if only this hadn't happened, or only if this had only happened. If only they could change that they had done this in their past. We, there's not one thing that we can do to change our past. Not one thing. There's not one thing you can do moving forward that will undo something you've done. You can look for restoration in, in relationships and things like that, but you can't 
We don't have a time machine. We can't go back in time. Superman's not going to fly around the world real fast and spin it backwards for us. We cannot go to the past and undo anything. We can give it to God and we can move forward. We cannot change what we have done. We cannot change what has been done to us. But we can, through the help of God and others, move past them. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Isaac if, he's, if he'll come back up.